You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Welcome to episode 25 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Leah Henning, and with me today are Marie Haas and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Hello, Marie, Victoria. Hello. Hello. All right, well, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Uh, Victoria, would you like to start? Sure. Hello, all. I am Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Uh, I am enjoying the last bit of a summer off before I begin work at Public Radio International in Minneapolis. So uh, everybody around me is uh, talking about their first days of school. I am a little bit sad that I will not have a first day of school this year, but I'm also excited to uh, to enter into a new adventure. And I'm Marie Haas, and I'm working on finishing up a dissertation on early modern literature at Florida State University. Um, So this is in the period that I'm studying, but I hadn't actually read too much about this whole saga of the wives of Henry VIII before. So I really enjoyed reading Lindsay's book and um, sort of getting into that that whole mess that was this uh, the Tudor experience there. Um, so I'm excited for this episode. I am too. Um, I'm Leah. I'm originally from Minnesota, which is where I did my undergraduate studies. But now I'm in my second year pursuing my master's degree in early modern European history at Loyola University in Chicago. So this is right in my area. Um, and I I personally love the Tudors and all of the history connected to them. So I was very excited to do this episode. Um, And for our listeners, today's episode is focused on Catherine Parr, uh, Henry VIII's last wife. And we uh, read the final chapter of Karen Lindsay's book, Divorced, Beheaded, Survived, A Feminist Reinterpretation of the Wives of Henry VIII. Um, so why don't we go ahead and start uh, with Marie? All right. Well, there's so much to say about Catherine Parr, of course. But um, first, all, first of all, like you say, she's the sixth and the final wife of Henry VIII. And uh, Karen Lindsay takes the title of the book that we read from Divorced, Beheaded, Survived from the the mnemonic that lists the the fates of these six wives. It goes, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. So Catherine Parr is the one who survived. Um, Catherine of Aragon, the first wife, was set aside so that Henry could marry Anne Boleyn. Then Anne was beheaded after accusations of infidelity. And, of course, after producing a daughter instead of a son. Jane Seymour, wife number three, did give Henry a son, but died because of childbirth complications. Then Henry's subsequent marriage to Anne of Cleves was annulled due to accusations of her not being pretty enough. 
And then the fifth wife, Catherine Howard, uh, was executed after allegations of adultery. So in early 1543, um, a year after Catherine Howard's execution, when Henry started sending these expensive gifts to Catherine Parr, she must have had a kind of sinking feeling and uh, but not be able to escape what's going on. But she was the daughter, uh, a well-educated daughter, having learned um, uh, m many language skills and um, become adept at translation, uh, the daughter of a minor courtier. And um, she started receiving these advances from Henry even before the death of uh, her ailing second husband, Lord Latimer. Um, so Latimer died in March of 1543, and Henry then married Catherine. At that time, she was a 31-year-old uh, woman who's childless and now twice widowed. Um, and they were married in July of that year, despite Catherine at that time already wanting to marry uh, Jane Seymour's brother, Tom. Four years later, Catherine then achieved the accomplishment for which she is best known. She survived Henry VIII when Henry died in 1547. And then Catherine promptly married Tom Seymour, but died a year later after giving birth to a daughter. Um, but there's a lot more that we should remember about Catherine than that she just survived Henry by a year. So for one thing, just as a queen, she was a relatively powerful woman in a society in which relatively powerful women were pretty scarce. Um, besides Catherine of Aragon, Catherine Parr was the only other one of Henry's queens to serve as regent, which she did for four months in 1544, while Henry was at war. And she was also instrumental in um, getting Mary and Elizabeth back into the line of succession, which of course has big historical impact. Um, but even more importantly for our purposes, I think uh, Catherine Parr was an influential patron of reformist writing. She sponsored a project to prepare English versions of Erasmus's Latin paraphrases of the Gospels, and she was herself a theological writer. And it's as a writer that uh, Catherine Parr is really a literary landmark because um, she's the first woman to publish and, and print in England under her own, her own name uh, with her books, Prayers or Meditations, which was printed in 1545, and her Lamentation of a Sinner, which is published following Henry's death in 1547. Um, so... With these religious works, we see that she has strong religious convictions, um, and that's evident in her, her patronage as well. Um, and those convictions are a reason that she really nearly didn't survive Henry. Um, she spoke too freely about her own beliefs in this atmosphere at court where, in which disagreeing with a king on a point of religion was to him basically the same as heresy. And you kind of had to guess what was going to be heresy or not by those criteria because it kept changing. Um, so members of the conservative faction at court, especially Stephen Gardner and Thomas Ridesley, attempted to get Henry to reject his queen, which, as we know, was proven to be pretty easy to do in the past um, by implicating her in heresy. We had this going on in the summer of 1546 um, when 
they engineered the torturing of Anne Askew, who was this well-known religious speaker um, who had been imprisoned and was awaiting execution on charges of heresy. They were attempting to force Askew to implicate Catherine, whose circles of acquaintance overlapped with Askew's. But Askew never gave in. She was executed without giving Gardner what he needed to oust Catherine. But soon after that, at least according to John Fox's uh, Acts and Monuments, Catherine angered Henry by urging him towards further reformation of the church, um, expounding her own interpretations of scripture. Henry, uh, following this, complained to Gardner about how annoying it was, he said, when women become such clerks. And Gardner convinced the king to allow him to draw up a document for Catherine's arrest. Uh, somehow, and it's likely through one of the court physicians, uh, Catherine was warned of her danger, and she immediately then, uh, very candidly, put on this elaborate show of penitence and submission, um, claiming that she had only pretended to disagree with Henry in order to benefit from his the, the learned wisdom of his replies. So the king was mollified. He reconciled with Catherine. Um, and it said that uh, when Risley showed up the following day with guards to arrest Catherine, uh, Henry angrily dismissed him, and um, the Gardner and Risley faction was out of favor for the last six months of Henry's life. Um, but in this confrontation, Catherine had been forced to contradict her own you know, deep-seated beliefs, and to save her head, she'd had, she had to silence her tongue for the last months of her marriage. But significantly, she didn't stop her pen then. It seems that uh, almost immediately following this uh, altercation with Henry, Catherine uh, composed The Lamentation of a Sinner, which is her most original and personal work, um, as if it were to set the record straight about her commitment to her own convictions and her right to have them, whatever the king's opinions. Um, as it turned out, this work didn't come to light until following the king's death, um, but that she wrote it at all, despite this very real danger to herself, um, points to Catherine's courage. So it's her courage and her religious commitment that um, are really more important to her memory than the survival that they nearly cost her. Uh, so that's just a very tiny snippet about Catherine Parr's life and uh, what we remember her for now. And Victoria, I think, is going to give us some more details about uh, Catherine's significance. Thanks, Marie. Um, you did a really good job uh, talking about lots of important things, so I'm just going to add to that a little bit. Um, but first, uh, a confession of my own. I uh, didn't really know that much about Catherine Parr. Um, before doing research from, for this episode, uh, I knew, like probably pretty much everyone does, that she is the survived in that uh, famous rhyme, that she's the last of the wives. I knew that she was involved um, in the Protestant Reformation. I didn't know she was as involved as it turned out she was. And I had no idea she was as prolific a writer as she is um, in doing research for this episode. I looked at her complete works and correspondence, um, which is edited by Janelle Mueller, and clocks in at over 650 pages. Uh, some of that is um, is really strong academic introduction by Mueller, but a lot of it is Catherine's writings themselves. So really prolific, lots of great stuff there. 
Um, the book contains letters that cover a period of over 30 years from before she was queen through her reign with Henry and her role as dowager queen after his death. And there's a final section of letters um, of people writing about her after her own death. Uh, the non-epistolary part of the book has four important texts, uh, most of which Marie has already mentioned. 1544's Psalms or Prayers, which is a translation of the Psalms done in conjunction with Nicholas Udall's translation of Erasmus's Latin paraphrases of the Gospel into English. 1545's Prayers or Meditations, uh, which includes a prayer for the king and a prayer for men going into battle, uh, both of which point to Catherine's knowledge of her own kind of complex um, political position as um, queen of someone who's declared himself head of the church, but also as someone who holds personal Protestant convictions. Uh, I found the a, uh, a scan of the frontispiece of prayers or meditations. Here's what it says. Prayers or meditations wherein the mind is stirred patiently to suffer all afflictions here, to set at naught the vain propriety of this world, and always to long for the everlasting felicity. Collected out of holy works by the most virtuous and gracious Princess Catherine, Queen of England, France, and Ireland. And then there's a coat of arms at the bottom. So that should give you an idea of kind of the tone of the prayers in that book. Um, Marie already talked a lot about 1547's Lamentations of a Sinner, so I won't cover that here. And the last text um, in the compilation is her personal prayer book, which covers about 1544 to 1548. Um, and there's really some wonderful uh, prayers and thoughts there. So if you get a chance to pick up this book, I'd recommend you specifically check out that part. The last thing I wanted to mention about her importance to her period is that um, Catherine seemed to be, to me, a, a really complex woman because she's in this really difficult social position. She's married to a man who, I mean, it's it's an understatement to say was a difficult husband, right? So she's she's got to represent this country when she is also personally representing a... Uh, a faction that is targeted by a lot of people in power. So I was interested to read a little bit more about the company she kept while she was in that power position. Um, she was really close friends with and traded letters and uh, writings with both Thomas Cranmer, um, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury under Henry Edward and very briefly under Mary before he was executed. Um, Cranmer has often been called by historians the architect of the English Reformation. So he's he's really central to Protestantism in England. Uh, they're close friends. She's also close friends with Margaret of Navarre, who is a rather scandalous um, figure as far as um, European women of this period go. Margaret of Navarre is also a very prolific writer. She writes both um, women's prayers and devotional texts and kind of uh, semi-Ovidian kind of naughty romances. Um, there's a, a story I was told in graduate school, I'm not sure it's true, but I kind of hope it is, that uh, at one point 
in the 16th century British court, there were all these ladies who uh, walked around hiding their copies of Margaret of Navarre in their copies of Margaret of Navarre. That is, uh, had the devotional texts on the outside hiding the kind of dirty poetry on the inside so that they wouldn't get caught. Uh, not sure if that story is true. Kind of hope it is. So Catherine is surrounding herself with people who are educated, people who have big um, opinions, and she's doing it in this way that is trying to balance personal obligation with religious obligation. So I found her really interesting. Wonderful. Um, well, I think we'll just go right on to why we think this chapter is relevant to us as Christian feminists. Um, Marie, would you like to start and then I'll, I'll chime in? Sure thing. Well, I think you can already see a, a lumber of reasons why um, Catherine stands out um, as an historical figure and as a figure of note for feminists, whether Christian feminists or um, historical feminists like in uh, Lindsay's project. Um, one thing, I guess, that comes up with any past writer female writer that emerges for re-examination is, you know, what what are her attitudes towards gender? What's she saying about gender through her um, her works and to a certain extent through her life? Um, and uh, there can be sometimes a kind of feminist frustration when you get these important female writers of the past who um, explicitly endorse these sort of confining traditional gender roles in their writing, um, which uh, Catherine Parr does at some points. Um, but I think it's important to remember that the situation is always a little bit more complex than that from our point of view. Oh no, she's like failing to be a feminist or something like that. Um, I mean, of course, the, even the word feminist didn't even exist. So it's it's very um, much more complex than that. So in Catherine Parr's writing, uh, writings, we do get her endorsement of um, especially uh, Paul's injunctions to women, for example. So it's true that at one point in The Lamentation of a Sinner, um, in this list of vocations of people of various stations, Parr says that uh, married women should, uh, quote, learn of St. Paul to be obedient to their husbands and to keep silence in the congregation and to learn of their husbands at home. Um, but I don't think that we should necessarily then just take this statement as the entirety of Parr's views on gender. Um, so if we go back for a minute to her performance of feminine submission for Henry VIII, as recorded by Fox, um, you can see a little bit of the complexity that I'm talking about, perhaps. When, when Catherine learned that she was going to be arrested, she first staged a nervous breakdown so that when Henry heard her screams from her chambers, he came and visited her and she claimed that she was suffering so deeply at the thought that she displeased him, that her mind is so disquieted. And so in that way, she displays her wifely concern with obedience. And then the next day, she went to Henry's bedchamber in this continuation of her effort to save herself through a performance of feminine virtue. And as a kind of test, Henry began to talk about religion claiming that he had doubts on scriptural interpretations and that she could help him clear them up. 
but Catherine um, then uh, responded by talking about um, Fox says the great imperfection and weakness of women in comparison to the superior shape and likeness of God that men have. Um, and Parr said that God had appointed such a natural difference between man and woman that as a poor, silly woman, so much inferior in all respects of nature, uh, Catherine could only refer my judgment in this and in all other cases to your majesty's wisdom as my only anchor, supreme head, and governor here on earth next under God to lean unto. Um, and when Henry then objected that you are become a doctor, Kate, to instruct us as we take it and not to be instructed or directed by us, um, Catherine denied this, saying that he was mistaken and that it would be unseemly and preposterous for the woman to take upon her the office of an instructor or teacher to her lord and husband. She said she'd only wanted to learn from him. So in this situation, I think we can see Catherine Parr as a little bit more Scheherazade than Beth Moore. Um, her submissive inferiority here is a story that she's telling her husband in order to save her life. Um, in a way, it's a kind of microcosm of the stories of submission that women have often been forced into telling with their lives, if not literally to save their lives, then at least to make them um, more livable in the situations that surround them. Um, but it's important to remember, too, that Parr isn't universally submissive as, you know, the situation that led to this exchange with Henry shows. Um, and her religious view of gender, too, I think, goes beyond this one paraphrase of Paul in the lamentation of a, of a sinner. Um, as a woman writing religious texts, Parr implicitly shows that women can write religious texts, which, you know, might not seem like much of a statement now, but when you take into account that just a few years earlier, at the uh, the Act for the Advancement of True Religion, um, it had been made illegal for women to even read the Bible. A later clause made some space for gentlewomen to read the Bible in private. Um, but still, it's Parr's body of work is quite remarkable. Um, in that context, especially in that she publishes uh, so openly, even given, given her royal status, which allows her a lot of re uh, leeway with this. Um, also, in looking at her writings, the gender-neutral voice of her prayers and meditations, uh, you could read it as pointing to the immediate accessibility of God to any human soul, whether male or female, which is a kind of spiritual egalitarianism. Um, and something that Susan James points out in her biography of Catherine Parr is uh, the way the lamentation of a sinner involves a number of gender reversals with the confident speaker who's uh, still like in prayers and meditations using a gender neutral voice um, taking on traditionally male attributes including the apparent authority to chastise both male and female sinners and implicitly to teach both male and female readers. Um, and at the same time, Jesus is described in terms of virtues that are usually associated with women, such as innocence, obedience, meekness, and humility. Um, so some even think that Parr's portrayal of herself uh, in this work as a woman set apart from other women with the authority given to her by a queen uh, might have influenced her stepdaughter Elizabeth and, um, and Elizabeth's later sort of uh, carefully crafted androgynous portrayals of herself with her virginal femininity and masculine authority. 
Um, so in any case, though, though I wouldn't call Parr a proto-feminist. Um, she isn't herself meek and silent. And uh, like Victoria said, she's this complex woman in a complex situation. And her life and her writings really show the, the contradictions and complexities of early modern ideas about gender. Um, of, of course, showing how those are affected by, by class as well. It is significant that it's a queen who gets her name on um, the first work to be printed under a woman's name. Um, so what, what about you guys? Well, first, I'd just like to say that I love that both of you really showed how complex she was in the biography that you gave Marie and also, Victoria, your um, breakdown of Catherine Parr's importance to her own time. Um, uh, quite honestly, when I was reading this chapter, uh, it, it struck me as a historian, uh, and but more so as a feminist historian. Uh, in a way, Catherine Parr is a figurehead for why I and many of my female colleagues study history um, in that she is one of the forgotten humanist authors of the early modern period, and she's often overlooked except as the last wife of Henry. And there, that was something that you said, Marie, in your biography of her, that she's most well known for surviving marriage to Henry VIII. And obviously there's so much more that she could be remembered for. Um, so reading this chapter and actually just reading Lindsay's book in general really broadens the, the focus of women's history. Um, and it allows history to be told from the woman's perspective, we get to see Catherine Parr for herself and not as simply the wife of Henry VIII. Um, she didn't just survive him. She did. She lived her own life. She married three other people, two before him and one after. Um, she had children with other people. She, she wrote books. She expanded the religious culture of England at the time. Um, so as I was reading Lindsay's uh, story of Catherine, that was what struck me was that uh, more people are coming in and showing historians and people who are reading histories that there is more to discover. There are more perspectives and stories to tell. That's really fantastic um, and, and really ties into what, what struck me um, about Catherine's role as Christian feminist or uh, Christian proto-feminist, whatever we're calling her. Um, I was really moved by, um, uh, I guess, a, about 10 pages into the chapter, um, Lindsay talks about um, Catherine's relationship with Mary Tudor, that she's the one who brings um, Mary and Elizabeth back into court, um, that Henry's children are, are sort of shuffled around to various palaces based on the politics of, of whatever wife he has at the time, um, and, and she tries to form them into some kind of family. She forms um, a friendship or renews a friendship with Mary. Um, they'd been together in court earlier because 
um, Catherine Parr's um, mother had uh, had been in the court of Catherine of Aragon, Mary's mother. So she brings Mary back, and um, not only does she try to strike up a friendship with her um, that Lindsay calls combining the abstract and the concrete, um, because she's she's trying to sort of perform motherhood while also being motivated by um, spiritual matters. She encourages Mary herself to um, to philosophize and to study and to think about the Bible. Um, Mary helps Nicholas Udall translate Erasmus into English, and Lindsay quotes a courtier as saying that the, the entire aesthetic um, culture of the ladies-in-waiting is changing, that he used to just see a bunch of women kind of walking around um, doing embroidery and, and playing with fans, and, and now they're sitting in these very serious groups studying and translating. So uh, I was really struck by that. Here's a woman who's um, not only changing court culture and making it about something deeper and more intellectual um, in an era where, as Marie said, women being deeper and more intellectual wasn't always uh, smiled upon, she's also channeling it into this female mentorship that must have been incredibly familially and politically complicated, um, given her earlier um, relationship with the royals. So that was something that I that I found um, really, really intriguing and really endearing about Catherine. Definitely. Um, Catherine, <laughs> as everybody can hopefully tell, uh, Catherine is a complex and wonderful person and everybody should read books about her. Um, but uh, why don't we go on and uh, maybe talk about um, Lindsay's style of writing and how she portrayed this. Uh, Victoria, did you want to expand on that? Sure. Um, the first thing, I think that the most useful thing for me to do here is, is just to read a bit um, from the chapter so that our listeners can get um, can get an idea of the the writing style Lindsay is employing. So I'm just going to read the first short paragraph here, and then we can talk a bit about it stylistically. Catherine Howard was executed in February 1542, and Henry found himself once more without a wife, or a likely prospect of one. It had been hard enough to find a woman willing to marry him after Jane Seymour's death. Now, with another divorce and another execution under his ever-widening belt, Henry was even less of a matrimonial prize. At first it seemed as though he had accepted that it was time to secure the succession by founding, finding suitable spouses for his children, rather than by producing more heirs himself. Nonetheless, he was keeping an eye on the ladies of his court. It wasn't too long before he settled on one. So that's the first paragraph. Um, it is... I don't know. I'll, I'll withhold my judgments and, and let you ladies respond first. Uh, can you give me some adjectives to describe the tone of that paragraph, maybe? I would go with friendly. Um, maybe reader-friendly, more specifically. Um, that was something that I really enjoyed about her writing style, was that it did flow just like a narrative and story, uh, rather than just a history textbook. I would say it's pretty irreverent. 
um, which I think goes along with uh, Lindsay's attitudes towards the other biographers that she's um, often, you know, revising in her view of these women that she's talking about. Um, and I think that that is sort of intentionally a part of her feminist project here, at least in terms of the intentional revisions of these other um, historians, um, and that her, her tone really goes along with what she's doing in that project and saying we have we, we're actually when we're writing history we're actually writing history we're we're saying what we think happened not what actually happened um and her tone is part of that kind of recognition of the constructed nature of history i think that's a really great point uh the the words i have here in my notes are conversational snarky and gossipy question mark um, and I, I put a question mark by that term um, because of its sort of gendered implications, right? Gossip is a word that we use um, primarily to talk about women who are talking out of turn. So I, I wanted to, to question my own usage of that word. But it's, it's definitely conversational and approachable. And um, I, I like, Leah, what you said about narrative. This is nonfiction that I think kind of reads like fiction. Um, and not just because, you know, Henry is, is kind of scandalous and, and ridiculous in it. Um, that, that crack about his ever-widening belt um, that I read, he certainly does not come off uh, looking good here. But I, I did, I, I thought that um, it was really interesting. Um, it's obviously well-researched. There's a lot of um, primary historical sources quoted in the chapter um, and, and a lot of really strong work done, but the tone makes it easy to get through. Um, so you two ladies said that you, um, you enjoyed reading the chapter in her tone. Uh, Leah, as our resident historian, can you tell us a little bit more about how historians think of this book? Do they like it? Do they think it's serious history or not? To be honest, I didn't find very many critical reviews of Lindsay's book. Um, the ones that I did find were lukewarm about it. They said there was good history, but that the tone isn't academics not respectful enough, which is something that I think you find across the board whenever a scholar tries to write um, an, an, a nonfiction book for the public, for the public to enjoy and understand. Um, quite honestly, uh, with the rise of the feminist history and women's history movements, um, not enough people are reviewing books like this because they're still relatively new in historian circles. I believe women's history, which goes back and tries to fill in the blanks of what women experienced in history, really emerged in the 1980s. So there's a lot of scholarship left to do. Um, Lindsay's book is a great addition to this movement of historical scholarship because even if it is um, looking at women who are covered by more traditional historians, they are acknowledged by traditional historians, we get to see all of them and all of their experience without having to see it through that male lens. Um, and even if the language is a bit less respectful or less scholarly, uh, it's still adding that different perspective to 
to the historical narrative. Um, so that was wonderful in our reading because we didn't just learn about Catherine Parr through how she was useful to Henry. We learned about her and what she was like and how her life was experienced. And it's a useful to any historical study, even if not all historians appreciate that approach. I'm really interested. Um, I, I figured that, that the reception was going to be, um, not entirely favorable um, because of the tone, um, even though I enjoyed the tone a lot. I know that um, in in history, even more so than in literary studies, there's this kind of um, fairly rigid idea of, of what is acceptable as far as being serious and academic. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm someone who studies things like uh, pop culture and appropriation, so I, I don't have a huge amount of adherence to that point of view in my own work, but I was interested in how often you used um, the words respect and respectful um, about this kind of historian response to Lindsay's book, and I wanted to know um, respect for whom or what, and respectful to whom or what. I mean, I, I don't think that we should be respecting Henry, right? At least, well, not from my point of view or from Lindsay's point of view. Um, you know, this is a megalomaniac, essentially, who is going around chopping people's heads off um, that don't agree with him. Granted, his daughters, who are also considered powerful historical figures, chopped off a lot of heads. People who didn't agree with them, too. So, maybe I shouldn't go that far. But, um, it is this about respecting people that make up history or is it about respecting history as like an institution? And if it's about the latter thing, how is that important? What does that mean here for us or for feminist history? Do you think? I think it's an important question, but I would say that the answer is more the latter. It's more respect towards the institution of history. Um, and that is, something very difficult to define, obviously, um, because it is actually a, a relatively young um, academic circle. There weren't official historians in the way that we think of them today until the 1850s. Um, and most of the history that we know is this privileged white male perspective. Um, the other is forgotten or completely ignored or mentioned in one paragraph or one sentence. Uh, and in the case, like with Catherine Parr, oh, she was just the last wife of Henry and she survived him. Let's move on. Um, it's challenging for historians, especially women's history, uh, people who use that perspective, that historiography, um, because there is such an expectation of the language that should be used. It should be strictly academic. Um, there 
is hardly any wiggle room for reaching a broader audience outside of historians because there will always be a historian or a group of historians to criticize the person with the more narrative voice um, for uh, not portraying the full amount of history or the complexity of the issue. Uh, And I'm really oversimplifying this and it's still difficult for me to explain, but um, that tends to be the challenge for when historians are wording their arguments um, and why so many historians or people who write histories are often disregarded by historians due to their language. Um, I know in graduate courses that I have taken, we often criticize historical works because of their easygoing language, because it leaves out um, much of the complexity or they forget to mention something that we deem very important in a because it attaches to this issue or this event or this person. Um, And for women's historians, for feminist historians, I would say just go ahead and challenge that. Continue to write in a way that shows your perspective because all scholars, not just historians, can only write to one perspective at a time. And that's something that all academics and historians need to remember. Yeah, that was, if I could add, that was one thing I really liked about her book was uh, just that really clear acknowledgement of all historians writing from their particular perspective. And she's not going to try to hide what perspective she's writing from. And she's not going to try to hide how she's revising these other um, historians' perspectives. And I think even more clearly than in this chapter with Catherine Parr, probably comes across in her treatment of Anne Boleyn, which is where she's possibly the most revisionist, where she's combining this more current feminist work on uh, women being sexually harassed at work um, with her her interest in Anne Boleyn and uh, talking about and treating Anne Boleyn as this woman who was sexually harassed by Henry and her job as a lady in waiting, basically, and she tries to you know reject Henry's advances politely and so and tries to do whatever she can to mitigate the um, the horrors of the situation for her. So fitting Anne Boleyn's story into that more modern perspective on sexual harassment does a lot to to break away from the traditional biographical um, image of Anne Boleyn as this you know, cheap seductress out for herself, etc. Um, or as and, a witch. Yes. <laughs> um, so that's just sort of Lindsay's approach throughout the work, um, combining these this current feminist these current feminist ideas with uh historical knowledge but in a, in a very clear and conscious way um showing that she's revisionist revisionist and arguing that you can be revisionist with history so it is actually i think a challenge to this view of the, the monumentality of the work of the historian 
can I ask one more question before we move on to recommendations? Is that okay? Absolutely. So I love what you ladies are saying about um, about her about Lindsay owning her voice as a historian about her being clear um, about her if I can use a, uh, a word that's negatively applied to feminist her agenda um, I, I agree that she's open about it um, and I think that's great and also I have not read this Anne Boleyn chapter and would really like to because that sounds fascinating um, but here's my question where is the line between being open about where she's coming from as a feminist historian and being too presentist, bringing too much of her 21st century point of view about kind of appropriate political action or appropriate gender roles or any of those things to bear? How how do we let Anne and Catherine and Henry be residents of the 16th century and act like residents of the 16th century um, but but also kind of question the the norms of the period. How can we do both of those things? Um, I guess the main thing would be not to put modern va- value on these people. Uh, they are historical figures. They lived in a time unique to them, one that we can only really imagine and scholars are still trying to figure out what life was like for them. Um, So we can't place too much of our own influence, our own experiences, even our own emotions upon these people because they experienced and understood everything so differently from what we, we know today. And I think, I mean, to a certain extent, she is sort of combining those two things and, you know, pointing out that this is a narrative that she's constructing and and saying that she is like all the other biographers and historians going before her, um, working from a kind of presentist perspective and that um, if she's acknowledging it, then it does leave some space for the reader to um, construct their own ideas about what what was the actual situation, you know, based on whatever facts are accessible about uh, the life and times of these people. Um, So I think just that her being open about um, writing from her particular point of view actually helps more in removing um, that uh, sheen of um, historical accuracy um, from accounts of people's lives um, and helps make it more accurate than it would be by uh, pretending not to be presentist. Uh, okay, thanks. Uh, thanks for your responses to that question. Uh, should we move on to recommendations now? Yes, let's. Um, Victoria, did you want to start with that? Sure. I can be up first. Uh, My recommendation is kind of boring in that uh, I'm just going to recommend the book that I use to do research for this episode. Um, 
slightly because I'm lazy, but not just because of that, because I really think this book is fantastic. Uh, again, it's Catherine Parr's Complete Works and Correspondence, um, published by University of Chicago Press, you know it's reputable, edited by Janelle Mueller. Um, it came out just a few years ago in 2007. As I said, it's very long, um, but but nearly exhaustive. Uh, the academic introductions are wonderful and informative. I really learned a lot. Um, if you're interested in digging in a little deeper into Catherine Parr than we had time to in this episode, I would recommend uh, Mueller's edited volume, Catherine Parr, Complete Works and Correspondence. And I guess I'll go. Um, I have two recommendations. Um, one is based on what we see in this chapter with uh, Lindsay's treatment of both Parr and and Askew and their involvement in um, the Reformation in England. Um, and they're both these women who leave behind important pieces of writing. Um, Askew's autobiographical account of her trial was published after her execution. Uh, this really goes along with the project of a book of essays called Silent But for the Word, Tudor Women as Patrons, Translators, and Writers of Religious Works, which is edited by Margaret P. Haney. And um, this book gets into some of the, complex the complexities we've been talking about, how um, women aren't really permitted much space for public speech, public writing, except to a certain extent in religious discourse, in religious uh, translation and, and um, their own personal writings, in some cases, as with um, Parr. And um, it, it points to the complexities of how this limitation is due to the structures of patriarchal authority of the time, um, but it also allows for a certain amount of subversion from a woman writing and talking in these areas, as we see in some cases with both uh, Parr and Eskew. So that's an interesting collection. Um, there's some treatment of Parr in it as well. And then the second thing, briefly, I'd like to recommend, um, also going along with women's involvement in the Reformation and with landmarks in English literature is um, if you, you might want to take a look at Anne Locke's A Meditation of a Penitent Sinner, which was published in 1560. And it's a sonnet sequence that's an extended paraphrase of Psalm 51. It wasn't published under Locke's own name, um, but it is a landmark in that it's not only the first sonnet sequence by a woman in English, it's the first sonnet sequence by anyone to be written and printed in English. Um, and uh, Locke had appended it to her translation of some sermons by John Calvin. Um, so, and like with Parr's prayers or meditations, the gender neutral voice in the sequence suggests a kind of spiritual egalitarianism before God. Um, so that's something to take a look at. There's an online version at Luminarium, and I'll put the URL in the show notes. All right. And I have a few suggestions for uh, anyone who's looking for different historical perspectives about Catherine Parr um, or topics that are connected to her. Uh, the first would be the book Five Women of the English Reformation by Paul Zoll. Um, it's a great short, shorter book 
um, that really dives into a few uh, key um, women from the early modern period, including Anne Boleyn and Anne Askew and uh, Catherine Parr. Um, and it gives some more information about their contributions to uh, the English Reformation. Uh, another one would be The Politics of Marriage, Henry VIII and His Queens by David Lodes. Um, this is a little bit older. This is from 94, but it has some great history about the difficulties that these women faced in marrying Henry and why he married them. So it's a little bit more of the male perspective, but it gives some more explanation as to why these women went through what they did. Um and my final suggestion is uh, Catherine Parr, The Making of a Queen by historian Susan James. And this I is- I love Susan James. She's fantastic. I, I love her too. She's one of my favorite female historians. Um, I hope to, to be her one day. Um, she has this wonderful, comprehensive book that- covers everything from Catherine's family to her as the queen to her after Henry dies. Um, she has some wonderful appendices with some love letters between Parr and Tom Seymour. Uh, some of her writings, some uh, The Will of Margaret Neville, and um, just some so much information and it's wonderful. If you have any interest in Catherine Parr, you should definitely look at that book. Um, all right. And I believe that's it. So thank you for listening to the Christian feminist podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you want to just drop us a line, you can do so at Christian feminist podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Christian Fippick is our press liaison. For Victoria Reynolds Farmer and Maria Haas, I'm Leah Henning. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss excerpts from Nadia Bowles-Weber's 2013 book, Pastrix. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. <laughs>